everybody. This is Joanne from Reed Science, and I'm here with my co-host, Jeff Schomeyer. And uh, we are joined today by Marta Zaraska. And um, we're so glad to be talking to you today about your, your new book called Growing Young. Let's see, the subtitle, How Friendship, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to 100. So it's things that are more important than exercise and diet, right? Yes, that appeared so. <laughs> it's great. Um, so um, I'm going to uh, read your bio just from the back of the book, if that's okay. So um, Marta Zaraska is a Canadian-Polish science journalist. She has written about nutrition and psychology for the Washington Post, Scientific American, The Atlantic, The Los Angeles Times, and New Scientists, among others. Uh, she is the author of Meat Hooked, the history and science of our 2.5 million year obsession with meat. So that was your first book and this is your second then. I mean, in English, yes. <laughs> in English, oh, so we have other languages, Polish yeah. or? I started writing in Polish, yes, but uh, my first books were actually novels. So um, this is, Mithug was my first book in English and my first nonfiction book as well. Nonfiction so. book, oh, I didn't know that. I'm sorry I didn't investigate you more. I'd like to learn more about that. So. Too obscure, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean, yeah, I'm not always on the lookout for books written in Polish, even though I have a tiny bit of Polish in my background. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Well, yes, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay. It's going to be, well, it's going to become pretty clear pretty fast what it is that we're talking about. But I've, I wanted to read two quotations from your book, one from very near the beginning and one from very near the end which sets up a little question that I, I want to ask rhetorically to start talking about all these things. Uh, the first one, I think was from the introduction, and you talked about the research, you, some research you were doing, and you said, and out of this research, a new story began emerging, whether I liked it or not, <laughs> that my sit-ups and kale juice were not as important to health as I used to think. Mm -hmm. And then toward the very end of the book, and I'm not going to give away the last sentence, which I thought was brilliant, by the way. Uh, you said friendships, purpose in life, empathy, kindness. Science shows that these soft health drivers are often more powerful than diet and exercise. And then I thought, this is, this is rhetorical, but I thought for rhetorical purposes, I would be the hard-nosed physicist, hard-nosed. Uh, <laughs> and I tend to be reductionist. But you've given us a very different look at some of these, what you referred to as soft issues, because we're starting to understand, science is starting to understand, and even popular mind is starting to understand that there is something to satisfy even the hard-nosed physicist who says, fine, you've got a new effect. I want to know what causes it and what the mechanism is that might be doing it. And so... I don't think I had any objection to years of mind-body issues. If we feel better, if we do this, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. But it is emerging now, and you've summarized all these things brilliantly for us, that there are chemical, biological, biochemical things going in our body that understanding is arriving. And I wonder if we could just summarize a few of those so that we have some basis then for all of these 
examples that we're going to talk about because many of them were new to me and i have to i had to keep looking to see what you know the hpa axis was but i know it's going to keep coming up uh, so i wonder if we can just sort of set the stage for for what these these biochemical interactions are that mediate what you're calling here a mind body issue yeah so you know just like yourself many people when they hear about the soft drivers of health and you know kindness optimism friendships our community involvement and how they impact our health and longevity they often assume that this is some kind of new agey thing because you know it just sounds new agey uh, but the truth is there's just so much research out there very serious very you know down-to-earth biological neurological research uh that shows that there is nothing new agey about it it's it's just basically how we evolved it's purely physiological uh we are social apes just like our cousins the chimps we evolved to be surrounded by others and this is how our bodies prosper because we have certain systems that function the best when we can trust others when we are bonded with others when we can rely on them and when we are, are not alone mm -hmm. and uh, there are plenty of different systems in our bodies like you've mentioned before that interacts and it's very it's a complicated network right there's not just like one single mm -hmm. thing that causes this or one single thing that causes it it's all, all interlaced that's how our bodies are mm -hmm. in general and uh so for example we have this network of social hormones of social neuropeptides such as oxytocin serotonin vasopressin endorphins uh, that connect the way we are connected to other people our social lives our trust our bonding uh, to purely physiological processes so you have probably the most famous oxytocin right this is what, mm -hmm. what people often call, call the love hormone although that's simplification because it's not just that um, but it does feel as make us feel all warm and fuzzy when we are around other people for example when we're holding hands or looking deeply into each other's eyes or just giving each other hugs for instance mm -hmm. and on the other hand oxytocin just like all the other neurohormones uh here that i mentioned have also physiological purely physiological effects on our bodies mm -hmm. so for example oxytocin can lower uh, um, can lower uh, the inflammation processes in your body it can promote bone growth it can it can it really does affect your body directly. The same, for example, for serotonin that uh, in mice can even regenerate the liver uh, and humans have effects on our um, vascular health, on Alzheimer disease. It's, it's all very, very connected on one hand, very emotional and kind of what we call exactly this kind of soft or whatever, you know, like the mental part. The other very physiological effects. Endorphins, for example, make you feel bonded with other people it make you feel that you belong and they you get the release of them for example when you are doing line dancing with other people or mm -hmm. singing together and on the other hand they're also natural painkillers so so this is very you know it's all connected so these are the social problems yes, that's all that's connected as as biological systems are i'm always amazed being a physical scientist at reading about biological mechanisms and biochemistry uh, not only with how connected it is, but how how natural selection and then the process of evolution has not uh, repurposed always, but even added layers of utility to some of these existing you know, hormonal systems. Uh, and then while you were talking, it made me think that at least in English, there is a, a remarkable ambiguity with the phrase, oh, I feel good. 
<laughs> yeah. That kind of well, thinks because that that talks. That's you know, it's like, are you happy today? I feel good. Or, <laughs> how's your health? I feel good. But these yeah. two things start to work very closely together when the way we feel physically starts to. We can see how it affects feelings, and all of these evolve together to make us the social apes that we are. Like you say. Um, it's a it's a big system, and I wonder if I could. Here's a specific question for me, for you and Joanne. I think even I'm not sure that I understand what inflate inflammation really is, and I wondered if you could give me a brief <laughs> overview of the biological process of inflammation, particularly since with the COVID uh, coronavirus instance, cytokines are very very much in the news today, uh, and we don't really have to talk about that, but. What, what is inflammation? And it figures in the middle of a lot of these processes that we're talking about. So, Jan, do you want to try to tackle this one on? It's been a while since I've had to teach about inflammation. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, well, you, you know, I take aspirin. It's like, oh, I've got an inflammation. It's like I, I get puffy and something hurts. But there's a whole thing going on. Um, so you want you want the the initial the um, I'm yeah. thinking about the the reductionist biochemical uh, response, like the redness and the pain and the yeah. immobility. And, yes, and yeah. what are all these proteins doing, and what triggers them to go? And oh, I just I don't know. <gasps> I, I should have been given a, a you know a warning that I needed to. I should have a warning. I'm going to ask about inflammation. But that's yeah. all right. Inflammation, we, coronavirus, which is not exactly my no, topic of expertise. We can, we can also talk about the hypothalamus. Let's see, the hypothalamus, the pituitary gland, and the amygdala. Uh, okay. If you but want I can to more. <laughs> yeah, that's the coronavirus. <laughs> Because I finally I looked it up again. It's like I have to remember what this HPA axis is because it keeps coming up and it figures in a lot of these processes that connect how we're feeling with how we're feeling. Yes, that's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. It is a mouthful. That's why HPA usually you know is easier to remember. <laughs> and uh, this is one of the biggest links between our mental health, our social health, let's call it, and our how our bodies are functioning because uh, it all starts in your hypothalamus in your brain, and um, it's basically a stress response, so the kind of part of our evolved fight or flight response uh, from when we we're back, you know, in the savannah. And um, we had to have these processes to basically protect our life. And uh, so, so there is a cascade of hormones, basically, that gets released when it starts with the hypothalamus, when you detect danger, um, let's say a lion, you know, standing in the bushes there out to get you. And um, it all basically cascades down your body. There's just so many different hormones that get released. Uh, it involves things like, for example, cortisol, um, and uh, it activates your adrenal glands over your kidneys. But there is just much, much more. I don't want to go too much details because it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's a very complicated, plenty of different hormones. But cortisol is usually people, the one that people uh, recognize very fast. And, um, and this is something, you know, that still we still have, even though in modern times it's very often malfunctions because 
it doesn't have, uh, you know, we, we are not in the same conditions anymore. So very often this HPA axis these days gets chronically activated by minor chronic stresses, for example, like mortgage stresses or stresses about, stresses about college admissions and things like that. Whereas in the past, it was much more uh, survival and very sudden, and then it would come that we calmed down down by uh, an opposite system that uh, release other hormones to make sure that everything settled down your body. But these days, very often it's all chronically activated, which has all these negative uh, effects on our health uh, that we usually connect to exactly stress. Um, and on the other hand, also this HPA axis it comes down when we are surrounded by others, by people with trust, mm -hmm. when we are in our tribe, uh, and uh, this is how we also evolved. And, but this is, this is exactly the system that connects, you know, your mind, your social life with all this down the stream physiological effects, including your metabolism, for example, uh, that, uh, that have uh, nowadays often negative impact on our health. Mm -hmm. And so we can see from, see from that, at least in a way that, that sort of satisfies me, that there is a mechanism that this does tie stress to a lot of different things about how we actually feel and then how our emotional responses run. And then one other thing that I guess was a question while I was reading, or near the beginning, it got settled for me pretty quickly. But here is uh, just one statement from where you said, uh, partway through the book, here are some statistics. And you said, a happy marriage equals a 49% lower mortality risk. We can talk about mortality risk, but this sounds enormous. And part of the point is, it is enormous, it is enormous. <laughs> compared to, you know, eating acacia berries and, and kale, as you would say, that for people obsessed with like, what's one thing I can do or something like that, these are not small effects. Hmm. No, yeah, they are huge. They are even bigger, you know, than quitting your smoking habit yeah. of pack a day. Which that's of amazing. I, that's amazing. I never say, you know, don't quit smoking and get married instead. Absolutely not. You know, <laughs> compare, yeah. uh, compare the effects. You know how important this, these things are to our health, right? That there was this one meta-analysis I like in particular that exactly put everything together uh, from smoking to you know diet, exercise, and also all the so. so social drivers so social integration and marriage and living with someone and having friends and so on and exactly to put it into perspective and it's really made it very clear you know how important uh, our social lives are for our health and um, even to com compare to things as bad for us as smoking mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and so i guess just to summarize for people listening who haven't read the book yet but like the book now is is your examination of the research and what the research tells us about all of these things that we think of as soft issues or as emotional connections or social connections and things and how they compare with uh, all the things that fascinate Americans about their special diets and their superfood of the week and, and all of these things and how surprisingly similar the comparisons are and how important uh, having a good relationship with is with someone and with your community. You know, to even make it more drastic, actually, because you said that um, there's super diets and super foods, but actually when we are talking super diets and super foods, these are 
not in at the best uh, just have a minor positive impact on your health and very often they have no impact on your health and sometimes even negative in, term, in terms of some supplements when i'm comparing uh, the soft drivers or have health to diet and exercise i'm just talking about healthy diet in its simplest form, right? So eating your six portions of fruits and veggies a day and uh, having your regular exercise routine. And it, I'm not, absolutely not talking about eat goji berries, drink kale and, you know, and invest in exercise gadgets that count your steps. No. This is absolutely not about that. It's comparing to this very basic, simple, healthy nutrition, not about the obsessive, you know, fat diets and miracle foods and which are, as I've said, at best, uh, a minor improvement. But, and so out of the context of the book is different in the context. Um, two thirds of the way along or so, you say, if you can do just one single thing for your health and longevity, that thing should be finding a great partner and committing to the relationship. Yeah. That's, that's going to surprise a lot of people. Yeah, and you know, for some people, this can be bad news, I guess. But uh, on the <laughs> other hand, most Americans, well over ninety percent, do get married at some point in their lives, and even more are in a committed romantic relationship in some point of their lives. And when you think about it, you know how much time we invest into uh, reading about fat diets, about you know nutrition, about some miracle foods, about supplements and herbal supplements and vitamins, and how much time we invest into buying the gadgets for exercise and signing up for classes and finding the best apps to make our abs strong and what's so <laughs> And on the other hand, you know how much time do we put into our relationships, right? Do you put, because we should be putting more. So if you are spending, let's say, 30 minutes a day on your reading about nutrition or thinking about nutrition mm -hmm. or exercise, you should be putting at least 45 minutes, let's say, into your marriage quality. And are you doing that? You know, so this is so this is exactly the thing that um, I'm trying to make clear that we should be putting at least as much effort. And if we do, you know, relationships need work. I think that's kind of an obvious thing that most of us heard, but we often tend to forget in our busy lives, but we should really make it a priority. And there are ways that you can work on your on your relationships to make them better and also in the end, improve your health. Right. Yeah. And I think um, uh, I had heard this statistic before, uh, and I can't remember the exact number, but that husbands benefit even more from the, the marriage than the they, wife. And it's actually, a huge number. It was like, like a 70 something increase in well being. It was amazing. The amazing thing is that there is quite a lot of research that shows that for men, even a bad marriage is better for health than no marriage, which, you know, when you think about it, it is rather surprising. And um, it probably has something to do with just the feeling of having someone out there for you and mm -hmm. also from the fact that women are usually the ones in the relationship who take care about general relationships of the couple mm -hmm. so your social lives and when men are married they are much more likely to be integrated in the community and uh, having friends and more social relationships but it is a surprising effect because for women generally you know it's, it's happy marriage that matters but for men you know even not a very happy one can do that <laughs> too, so there's as you as you work through all of these studies and things and put together the big picture from the the smaller pieces, there are lots of fascinating examples and stories about the studies and, and the examples and the people of one or another thing. And I think you, you almost mentioned one a little bit ago, because in addition to being a scientist, I'm also a musician. And the studies about uh, 
doing things in synchronicity with other people makes us feel better. And that's rather fascinating. I, I, I first learned about it when I was visiting Professor Robin Dunbar at Oxford, um, mm -hmm. so the famed anthropologist, and he he's the one who started most of the research in this area. And, um, and uh, by now there is quite a lot of studies showing exactly that synchrony has this amazing power over us. So when you, for example, play music with other people. Uh, in general, it already makes us feel connected and bonded and makes uh, helps us release endorphins. So those happy hormones, basically, that also, as I mentioned before, have physiological effects, such as um, they are natural painkillers. And, uh, and uh, on the other hand, when we do things in synchrony with other people, the effects can be actually double that. So just the poor, just, sorry, I'm having a te technical problem with my, <laughs> headphone here oh, I'm so sorry okay. um, so having just the having just the, you know doing the same things in synchrony can really double the effects of uh, of music or dancing or just being with other people uh, together you know even things like tapping your fingers in synchrony with other people can already make a difference so um, out <laughs> so for, yes for my friends who are line dancers um, they're making themselves feel better and and enhancing their longevity. People who play uh, string quartets and people who sing in choirs and people who walk together tend to to match their pace. Yes. Uh, presumably because there's a little feedback mechanism that makes them feel better if they do that. Yes, it's probably something, you know, as you often say in neuroscience, when you don't know what's causing, it's probably the, neuro, the, the mirror neurons, although there we so far we don't really have much research to confirm it, but there is something going on uh, in our brains also uh, on in terms of how our brain waves get synchronized as well with other people when, do, when we are doing things together. And it probably is a feedback, feedback loop. So when you're starting to do something in synchrony, your brain waves get synchronized, which encourages even more synchrony and uh, it has this downstream physiological effects on you as well uh, also in impro potentially improving your health so which i say that you know it's a great thing because when you're thinking for example of doing sports uh, if you do sports in synchrony with another person uh, it has even more powerful effects on you uh, for example so instead of going jogging you can go jogging with a friend and if you do it in synchrony so you know step in step the effects will be even multiplied several times so this is really something that's it's very simple to do, but on the other hand, can have very powerful effects. Mm -hmm. And not just not just the uh, the physical effects of the exercise. We're talking about the synchrony, which has a, a lot of stuff and does biochemical things. But then you also have effects that come from uh, working on your friendships, having involvement in your community, uh, which gets us to questions like volunteering as a uh, life enhancing or longevity increasing <clears throat> activity provided one is motivated to volunteer for good reasons and not just get paid for right it. yeah you don't get school credit for it or or yeah <laughs> if it's just for school credits i'm afraid it doesn't work right. uh, so, or for your college admission you know <laughs> exactly unfortunately it doesn't work like this you have to be really motivated by empathy and kindness and if that's your motivation then you do have get amazing health benefits from volunteering so we are talking about mortality rates uh, reduction before and uh, in terms of volunteering it's anywhere between 20 to 
44% in mortality risk reduction, which uh, is also tremendous because this, is, uh, this falls at least as much as a healthy diet and a healthy exercise routine, if, if not more. It really depends on the study, right? Because different studies have different, uh, show different results, but at least as much as healthy diet and healthy exercise. So it's really, really powerful. So uh, you're talking about studies and you participated in a few studies or you went off to Portugal to try to, you know, for a longevity weekend or wellness weekend or superfood, whatever. I can't remember what it was. Longevity um, club. <laughs> longevity club. So I, I'm wondering, so it's probably a twofold question. So which, um, which study or interaction, you know, I know you did some actual studies and participated just to see, you know, what your level was of your white blood cells and their activity and things like that. So which one was the most interesting to participate in? And maybe which one was, you were like, okay, this did not do much for me <laughs> at all. You so know? the one that was most fascinating was the one I did on kindness and my cortisol levels. It was done with participation from scientists from the King's College London, who helped me tremendously uh, with the lab part of it. Uh, of course, you know, it was not real research because it was a sample of one. Just, just one, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work. But there is actual real research on, uh, on you know, done by on proper samples that confirms the same results. So, I, but I just really wanted to see it on myself, you know, how it works, how it's done and how it feels. And uh, so what I've done is that uh, for a week, uh, I chose three days uh, on which I would be doing acts of random kindness and for other days that will be just my control days and each and every day uh, over that week uh, three times a day i took my cortisol um i measured my cortisol by chewing on cotton swabs uh, that was a very unpleasant part i i would have never imagined how horrible it is to chew for two minutes on cortisol swabs uh and um and then uh, all these uh, swabs got sent off to a lab at King's College where the scientists measure, measured my cortisol levels and charted them because it's not as simple as you know low, low levels or high levels. It's about how they change throughout the day, uh, which mm -hmm. tells you about uh, whether you have a healthy stress response, basically, or not. And uh, and on those three days when I was doing acts of random kindness, I would sit in the morning and basically plan my day. What nice things can I do and for whom? It was really amazingly fun. I, I love doing that. It felt, it just felt really, really good. Uh, and so, you know, like bake cookies for, for my husband's colleagues at work, or, you know, just uh, buy a sandwich for a homeless person, like just things like that. Right. Uh, and, uh, and then when the re results came in, it really showed that on those three days that I was doing kindness, my cortisol response was much, much healthier than on the other days, even though one of those kindness days was also particularly stressful for me uh, for personal reasons. And yet it really didn't show on the cortisol level. I was because the kindness somehow balanced it out and, uh, and neutralized this uh, stress that I was having. And as I mentioned before, uh, there are proper studies on big numbers of volunteers that show exactly the same thing, that doing kindness actually uh, improves our stress response. It's, that's like amazing. And so was there a study that was like, or, or something you participated in that was dubious? You're like, I'm not so sure I'm getting results that I, I should. 
I mean, it was maybe not, it wasn't dubious for scientific reasons. It was dubious for the fact that I was not good at it. And that was the meditation study. So um, that was also done in London uh, with scientists from Oxford uh, University. And, uh, and the, the whole thing was to checked the response of my leukocytes uh, to meditation. And basically, uh, when people meditate, their leukocytes have a, let's say, more healthy response in terms of, uh, uh, of um, oxygenation and uh, response. And I was supposed to basically go, they measured my, uh, how my leukocytes are reacting. And after, by taking a small, blood sample that wasn't very pleasant and then i had to go and meditate uh for i think half an hour and afterwards my blood was taken again to check how my leukocyte response has changed and unfortunately it hasn't changed much but i I, I'm pretty sure it's just me because I'm just not a very good meditator. So uh, in people who are proper meditators, the long-term meditators, the changes are much more pronounced and you can actually see better results. Although in truth, also meditation, uh, when you compare it to things we've talked before, like volunteering, for example, or having uh, friendships or ha happy, healthy marriage is less important in terms of numbers uh, here than, uh, than those other things. Maybe because we don't have, a, it's just not a culture of meditating and, you know, making this something that happens every day. So the number of serious meditators that we see good results from is lower. And yeah, the things we can do, we, we are in control if we want to do kind things and yeah, helpful things and work on our relationships. And I imagine also something that you can learn to do better. You could, yeah, always learn. Right. So. So. <laughs> so it becomes more effective, I guess. Over time, yeah, yeah. if you want to work on it. Yeah. So, um, so I, I just um, was wondering. So this is the first book I've seen about uh, these um, in, in recently about different factors to help keep you young. So I honestly, this year I have read in less than a year, probably less. Um, so January. So I, I read a book like in November by Sue Armstrong, who has been a guest on our show uh, about uh, P53 gene, but she wrote a book called Borrowed Time, The Science of How and Why We Age. Then early in the year was one by David Sinclair called Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. And then I also read another book called Immortality Inc. about <laughs> renegade science, Silicon Valley billions and the quest to live forever. So a lot of these were about the actual Oh, we see the telomeres. You mentioned telomeres, and we can talk about those. You know, here's here's what you could do. You could take this pill, and yeah, you could sleep, <laughs> and you could do this, and you can do that. But they were less focused on these uh, friendship, optimism, kindness, these softer things, these things we actually have some control over. And I thought that's interesting that, you know, we are really looking for answers of how not to get sick and old too quickly. <laughs> and so, so I'm wondering what, what motivated you to go ahead and do this book? 
I mean, it was just science, you know, it was not that I was motivated by anything particular, just finding these studies and just being intrigued and wanting to find out also for myself what really makes us healthy. Because for a very long time, I, I was always very interested in living healthy, healthy. So I, I eat healthy, you know, and, uh, and I exercise and so on. And because I've been writing for about this uh, for so many years, uh, I wanted to see myself if I'm doing things right. You know, I, I would also love there to be a pill that's just, you know, you just pop it and everything is perfect. But unfortunately, in for most in most most times, it's just wishful thinking, and this is not how it works. And uh, we are the way we are, as I mentioned. You know, our bodies are still the, out there. You could say in the savanna, and we. Uh, we are social species that uh, need to certain things, this in involvement with others to function properly, and uh, and no no pill will replace that. And also, you know, when you think about pills, uh, I find it a little bit sad. You know, you just pop something, live forever, and uh, but isn't it more pleasant to gain the same effects or even better effects because we have no pills like that. Uh, and also be so much happier because you are with other people, you are kind, you are connected, you know, this is just so much nicer. It, it still could be a hard sell, at least in America, where, yes, the pill that uh, takes care of the particular thing or the superfood that solves the, the particular problem seems much more popular than the fact that, you know what, if you just live a better life and enjoy it more, you'll live longer. It's like, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I um, want a better life. <laughs> yeah. But, but suppose for, for some of us, uh, and I could use myself as an example, even that, you know, I was much more introverted years ago. I used to be much more neurotic. I worried about things all the time. And part of what you're telling us is that science tells us that if we uh, worry less and are involved more with people in some way. We don't have to turn into extroverts. Uh, that we will feel better and it will help us live longer. And the good news is you can learn these things. You can learn to be less neurotic. You can learn how to engage with people in a useful way that still is not uh, awful even for introverts. Uh, and I felt that was true. I think I decided you know, 40 years ago, I why worry about certain types of things that I can't do anything about? And I practiced not worrying about them. Now, See, you're not, you're right. <laughs> but you have you have in the book the documented things that tell us, yes, we can learn how to do these things. And in essence, we can practice them until we're better at them. And then we get the benefits provided we're motivated uh, in the right way to do this. Right? That's That's a nice thing that we can even learn how to be nicer people. Totally, you know, these are things we can learn and practice, you know, and exercise in a very similar way. We can exercise our muscles to get them stronger. You've mentioned neuroticism yourself, you know, this is one of the uh, personality traits that are the most connected to our health and longevity, this one in negative ways. So the more neurotic you are, the worse it is for your health. Mm -hmm. So you know, when you think this, about this kind of Woody Allen characters in the movies, <laughs> they would not live the longest. Uh, so, um, and yet, these are the things that can be changed for practice. Uh, personality, most personality traits are, I mean, all of them can be changed. Some of them easier, 
like neuroticism or conscientiousness, some of them a little bit harder, like, like extrovertism, for example. But you can work on them basically by faking until you make it. So you know, every day uh, you tr you do things as if you were less neurotic, you know, or, or more conscientious or more extroverted, and it actually becomes a habit and it actually changes your personality. And the same even with empathy. People just sometimes say, I'm just not a very empathetic person. But uh, the genetic part here is really, really small. And so uh, we can really practice and learn empathy in a very similar way. We can, you know, work on our muscles. Also, not everybody's born with the same base, basic, you know, muscle de development or whatever. So then some people have it easier to, to work on their muscles and yet it doesn't stop us from trying. And it should be the same in empathy, you know. And um, there are so many things. I also give examples in my book that you can actually do to exercise your empathy. And uh, usually these are very pleasurable things like reading novels, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, I, um... I, one thing that was in the book that surprised me because it was just taken for granted, it's become a part of um, at least Western society, the type A personality oh. is really not a thing or is not that big of a fact. I was like, it's not a no, thing. No, no. We said this since the 50s and the 60s. It's a thing. It was a tobacco thing, actually. Uh, right, right in the book, uh, we, right now we know that it was basically an invention by the tobacco industry uh, to divert the blame from cigarettes to something else for cardiovascular problems. Uh, it was basically invented uh, to just shift the, you know, the, the, the focus on something else. And no, it doesn't exist. Uh, there is nothing like being a personality that's bad for your health or anything like that at all. It's pure invention. So uh, now, now it's became cultural, you know, it's so in so many books and movies, so we kind of believe it, but it's not real. What is real is a deep personality, which is, uh, stands for this distressed, so kind of very nervous, neurotic, uh, worrying constantly, um, depressive, uh, pessimistic. So this is real, and it does have negative impact on health. But person, a, a personality, no. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that one blew me away. I went, really? No, I, that can't be. I'm so used to having a type A personality. To you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't have it, but you know, to think that oh yeah, there are type A personalities getting heart attacks. That, I mean, they, there are people who you could call type A personality, but it has nothing to do with their health or you know their their longevity at all. Mm -hmm. and, but mentioning it as, as a fabrication of the tobacco industry uh, has, has a bigger relevance here. It's like in your book, you um, you walk very nicely on the side of science and not pseudoscience, but how mm -hmm. are average people going to be able to, you know, so that you have some tips for how to say these over here, we have studies that show you and can do these things and we can trace it to effects and we understand uh, that will help your longevity and what do you mean drinking this tea is not going to help or something is do you have some tips for how to avoid the pseudoscience and maybe stick mm. with the scientific yeah. aspects i mean read good science media read your so, book would be one yes read my book <laughs> but in general you know avoid poor quality of media. So just go for the really the highest, uh, the media of the highest standards, like for example, Scientific American is amazing. You know, in the UK, new scientists discover, you know, there, there, there is media out there, the Washington Post, also the New York Times. So read really the newspapers and the magazines that have the highest standards out there and forget about, about everything else. Because unfortunately, you know, there are always, first of all, there are 
some journalists, unfortunately, you know, I'm among them. I mean, among journalists, but we sometimes, uh, as journalists altogether, uh, may be guilty of selling stories just for the sake of selling stories. And uh, and the the internet, uh, you know, is full of things that are based on very poor science or no science at all or misinterpretation of science. So the best tip ever is just to go and read only the best sources and forget about everything else. And I, Joanne and I can agree as, you know, as scientists, even science has its flaws and we try to correct those as we go, but they happen everywhere because we are human beings. You do your best. Can we talk about cultural things? And just because, I don't know, Japan is fascinating, but you had a, had a large look at uh, what we can learn from Japan, including do I have it? Ikigai. Ikigai. Yes, Ikigai. I'm. I'm fascinated about the idea of ikigai, purpose in life, which I feel like I'd like to come to before, to to figure out before I die. <laughs> um, and I think I think I've seen a fascination with Japan culture, and we think we look at it, we go, ah, oh, if we eat more rice, we'll live longer, or if uh, if we drink tea more slowly, we'll live longer and things. And these may be true, but those are really the superficial parts that then you talk about the Japanese and their culture and the Ikigai and what it is, in addition to being a little bit shorter, that makes, that enhances their longevity is all these socio-cultural aspects. Um, that make a sharp contrast to the way Americans tend to run their lives. I mean, certainly, you know, the diet plays a role, the being shorter plays a role and some other genes. But, uh, you know, the fact that Japanese are the longest lived nation on the planet, uh, they have also some cultural things we could learn from. And uh, one of them, as you've mentioned, is the Ikigai or what's generally translated into having the reason for living. And uh, when I travel in Japan, this is something people talk very often about, uh, including longevity researchers. You know, when I talk to longevity researchers in the West, they usually start with diet and exercise and things mm -hmm. like purpose mm -hmm. in life usually don't come up uh, at all. And in Japan, it comes up very, very fast. Mm -hmm. uh, and just like, for example, the uh, whether the society is equal or not, egalitarian or not, it also comes up very fast in the conversation about longevity in Japan. Um, and Ikigai is recognized as a health driver to the point that the health ministry of Japan also says this is one of the main uh, drivers of healthy living, having a purpose in life. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, for example, nowadays, the, the place in Japan where people live the longest is no longer Okinawa, it's actually Nagano Prefecture. So, you know, all those books about Okinawa diets are no longer the, you know, there is, it's not, now it's Nagano. And so one of the reasons uh, that the local health authorities think uh, are driving the longevity is exactly that the, the number of people who have Ikigai or purpose in life in Nagano are particularly high. Mm -hmm. And also, it's also the prefecture uh, with the highest numbers of people who are working so-called silver hair jobs. And yes. <laughs> I was very excited about that. <laughs> is absolutely, at least for me, it was mind-blowing when I heard about it and completely confusing at first. Um, basically, it's when people retire, but they don't really retire. Uh, instead, they retire from their original careers and then they go to a, a job agency that's called the Silver Hair Job Agency. 
and they look for another job uh, to work until they basically die. And uh, the idea here is that uh, the job, sorry, Oops. the job that they're having is uh, is something much much simpler and much easier than the jobs that we're doing before. So uh, it will be, for example, being a, a parking attendant or a public space gardener or helping children cross the street on the way to school, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are jobs, they don't, they don't do them for money. They do them purely for this kind of feeling of social inclusion and just being you know, useful and having a purpose in life and things like that. And, uh, and it's, it's very specific to Japan, but it also is very connected to this purpose in life and Ikigai because the silver hair jobs are giving those people purpose in life and helping them live longer. So and Nagano exactly is the place where those silver hair jobs are particularly popular. And that's right. the useful, practical uh, explanation that purpose in life we tend to think of as a grand cosmic thing in America. But purpose in life is a, is a reason to to get up in the morning or to do something and to have a responsibility of some sort. And it does not have to be a, a large scale change the world purpose in order to work well as, as these silver hair jobs show us, right? But also the important part here is this kind of giving part, because why, why, oh, a few times I had this conversation exactly already in the West that when people said, okay, my ikigai is playing golf. And uh, <laughs> in general, I don't think this is how the Japanese mean it. So it's also the, the part of giving to somebody else and taking care of other people is very important here. So uh, it's not exactly the same thing as the reason to get up in the morning, not totally, right? It's, it's much more nuanced than that. And usually in you know, people say that taking care of my grandchildren, for example, is my ikigai. Volunteering in my community is my ikigai. You know, things like that, right? So things that are very social and uh, have this kind of giving part to them. But I, I'm very impressed and I feel almost motivated to start a, a silver hair society or something because, I mean, you can see I'm beginning to think about things like silver hair jobs. And I was so, I really was delighted to read about that. Uh, and that you can talk about, but it's like, thank you. I'm, I'm just learning about silver hair jobs um, <laughs> has impressed me a great deal. Well, I, I say, you know, if I look at the hospital auxiliary, you know, it is older people who are volunteering. They've, they're retired and they've gone and they want to still be useful. They still want to get out of the house and interact with people. So it seems these ladies have been right all along. <laughs> they probably have. <laughs> So, you know, early on, you mentioned, uh, uh, so I, this is your second book, and you said before you, before you wrote uh, nonfiction, you were writing novels. So yes. what, what, what's the change? And then, you know, as far as, you know, explaining, you. <laughs> explaining science to the general public, that's, I mean, been, that's a great I, purpose in life, as far as we're concerned. I've been a journalist all 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 way uh, all way long. Uh, even when I was writing my novels, it was just kind of a more of a hobby thing, I guess. And did you did you <clears throat> gravitate towards science because you always had an interest in science, or it just ended up being the beat you were given? Or I mean, so the weird thing. I'm a, I'm actually a lawyer. And oh. when I tell it to people, I finished law school. And when people hear it, they're like, oh my God, it's completely different than science. And it has nothing to do with science. But actually, I often argue that um, 
being a lawyer actually prepared me amazingly for being a science journalist. Because when you think about what lawyers do, they always look for weak points in the argument, right? They look for at the data to check if it holds. Uh, they try to see the argument from both sides. So this is exactly, and they also read very difficult, very badly written stacks of papers. You know, <laughs> so this sounds exactly what I, as what I'm doing right now. So uh, so yeah, so even though I never practiced as a lawyer, but definitely the law school prepared me to what I'm for what I'm doing right now. But I've been a journalist for over 20 years now, so uh, it's been it's been a long time. And I'm also married to a scientist, so here at home we are all reading papers and talking about papers. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. Do you have tips for all those people who would read scientific papers? Oh. So who wants to read scientific papers? Well, or? reading scientific papers is a slog. Yeah, like for pleasure or? <laughs> well, they might, or to become journalists, uh, although it's usually where I emphasize, like scientific papers are not meant to be read quickly. No, <laughs> that's for sure. I mean, first of all, you know, they, as we all know, you know, scientific papers differ in their quality tremendously as well. So you have to be very careful of what you're reading because there is some very bad research out there unfortunately as well and there are some even journals that you know are not even peer reviewed and they appear to be peer reviewed so you have oh. to be very careful about your sources as well right so look at the best journals once again just like with regular media you have to look at the top and um, the ones that are you know like the lancet for example right or the bmj so really the best sources because there can be some very bad bad sources as well you uh Here's a quotation that I had from rather late in the book, and it's awfully hard not to read that uh, in our current context of, of a pandemic raging around. But you say policymakers are beginning to focus their attention on issues such as loneliness and divorce rates, yet they still mostly see them as social problems, mm -hmm. not public health issues. That should change. Yes, totally. And it is slowly changing. I just actually read a paper today on healthcare. It was a, a review on healthcare costs of loneliness in the UK. And it's been calculated that um, healthcare, um, the cost of to healthcare in the UK from loneliness are about $1,000 uh, per lonely person per year, which considering that there are 9 million lonely people in the UK, that would uh, amount to about $9 billion uh, to healthcare costs of healthcare costs in the UK uh, of loneliness. So these are very very real numbers, and the British are beginning to recognize that. You know now they have since 2018 they have a minister for loneliness. Uh, so in the government, right? So so these things are beginning to be recognized. The same in the Netherlands, for example, they calculated how much uh, neuroticism costs the healthcare, and the numbers were equally great. So you know each neurotic person has actually direct. You can calculate direct healthcare costs in, you know, additional hospital visits, lost days of work, and so on, so on, that's the, the, the healthcare has to pay. We, I think we have a, a particular problem with that in, in this country that maybe we can figure out, but uh, because we have several things that we'd be better off treating as, as healthcare problems rather than social problems, I think. Um, social problems, treating it as a social problem uh, gives us all sorts of deniability and peculiarly American ways of doing that. What comes with shifting from seeing something as a social problem to seeing it as a health problem, practically speaking, how it's handled, how it's discussed, that would be an improvement? 
I mean, generally, you know, then it puts money signs on everything. And, you know, the, when you put money on things, people start to respond better and see it more as a problem than, you know, something in someone's mind, you know, that uh, we understand numbers um, much faster, I guess. And when you exactly say that it's $9 billion, the cost of loneliness, then people, well, okay, that's, mm -hmm. that's something has to be done, right? So when it's just, okay, somebody's feeling not nice, uh, that's my, much harder to measure. And uh, we like to measure things. So I think that's... Uh, that puts much of a, much more of a spotlight on things and how they have to change. But the the type of solutions mm -hmm. that you might consider uh, to to try to ameliorate these problems also is it's quite a bit different. It's it's a big perspective change, isn't it? It is, but on the other hand, you know, the same study I just mentioned before that I read today, it also put very direct numbers on interventions, you know, and how each, for example, uh, intervention, for example, one pound invested in an interventions for ameliorating loneliness uh, can bring 1.3 uh, pounds of return to the healthcare system. So, you know, there are very, very uh, direct numbers here that we can quote and of particular inter interventions and what can be done. So it's not all fluffy and, uh, you know, just uh, uh, well, it's possible to measure those things. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder, um, and, I, and I wondered a lot as I was reading the book, there's a lot of things here, like hugging and talking in person and, you know, doing all these things. And hmm, maybe this is uh, dialed back a bit with the uh, pandemic. You know, we can't go over and hug grandma. We can't, you know, if we get, we saw our aunt, we can just, yeah, run up and hug and, um, in cultures that hug, uh, things like that. So, yeah, do you foresee any other, um, I don't know, maybe health issues that may come uh, other than directly getting sick from the pandemic? There, I mean, definitely the problem is, you know, that social isolation is really bad for our health. And um, not only people who are socially isolated have shorter telomeres, but also social isolation has actually impact on our antiviral response which is kind of worrisome when you think about it so for example when people are socially isolated or feel lonely they are much more prone to um, to fall sick from viruses and uh, the studies were done on both rhinoviruses but there were also studies done on the classic coronaviruses you know the the old school ones, not the deep yeah. which also show that, you know, if you are stressed and socially isolated, you are much more prone to fall sick, which, you know, makes you think about the current situation and how, you know, it's it's complicated, right? And, but on the other hand, I'm quite optimistic here because I hope that uh, what we are going through right now, maybe, you know, it's a, it's a temporary situation, right? If we were in the situation for 10 years, yes, that'll be a problem, but because it's so temporary, I hope that it will just uh, shift the focus, you know, we are having on uh, and make us appreciate the relationships, make us appreciate how important it is to be with others and hug and be in physical contact. You know, many people who are now working only online are beginning to appreciate, for example, how important the meeting your coworkers at the at a cooler, water cooler was, right? Before they thought it was just something, you know, a nuisance maybe, but now they see these are important things, and and they are. And maybe if we realize uh, their importance right now and recognize it, and, uh, mm -hmm. and maybe in the future it can actually boost our health because we will be more likely to uh, invest in our social lives. This is this is a huge opportunity, I hope, in the United States, because there are a lot of things being exposed, most of which are touched on one way or another in your book about the difference between uh, health problems versus social problems, appropriate responses, uh, 
all sorts of things. And then here's one more quotation that that I thought bared on that. You say, one thing that kept coming up in my interviews with Japanese researchers, something that usually wasn't on the table when I talked with their Western colleagues, was the connection between longevity and egalitarianism. Yes. That's uh, that's one exactly those very important uh, points to most uh, I think all of the longevity researchers I talked to in Japan that egalitarian societies uh, the one where Gini index uh, you know is much healthier is are actually better off in terms of longevity and there is research out there that confirms mm -hmm. that exactly even calculating you know per uh, by Gini index how it actually influences the health of nations and Japan is definitely much more egalitarian in those regards. Mm -hmm. uh, than unfortunately US. And uh, so this is another thing, you know, we can definitely improve. And this is not only for, because, you know, the natural thing here is to think, okay, it improves the situation of the people who are is poor or, yeah. uh, you know, but, that, but it's not the case. It actually improves uh, health for everyone, even for those who are the most privileged in the society. They also benefit their health and longevity if the whole society is, is more egalitarian. And this is possibly for the feelings of trust, connection, bondedness, neighborliness, strength of community, which are also important to our health. You know, the more we divide, the more we don't trust each other, the worse all this, you know, the, all the hormones we talked about, the HPA axis, all this, you know, it all manufactures. So you cannot escape it, even if you're privileged, you know, there, there's even research on gated communities and how they affect us negatively in terms of health, you know, for, for exactly these feelings of trust and connection. Um, so, so you cannot escape it by just, you know, okay i'm rich i have privilege so, you know it doesn't matter it does matter yeah interesting interesting <laughs> so i well um we're, we're coming towards the end of um this time together is there anything that we didn't mention uh that you wanted to say about your book yeah so i think one thing especially you know when you say the title you know it's like how Optimism, friendship, and kindness can help us live to 100. And people often focus on this 100 part, and they tell me that they don't want to live to 100. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is that I think it's a very common misconception that people assume that if you live to 100, it means you are going to be sick for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And the interesting part is that what I also discovered researching growing young is that um, when people live particularly long, they also tend to stay healthy for a very long time. So when you hear about you know, somebody running their first marathon at 95, this is not actually something to be so amazed about. Uh, so for example, when, when people live to their you know, the average lifespan, so 80 something in the West, uh, they tend to spend about 18% of their time on earth uh, being sick. Whereas people who are super centenarians, so those who live to be 110 or more, they only spend about 5% 5, 5 of their time on earth being sick. Yeah. And one in 10 of those super centenarians actually stays healthy until the very last three months of their lives. So wow. imagine that, you, you know, you live to be 111 and you're only three months sick, right? That's, that's absolutely amazing. So it's not... It's, it's actually the, the longer you live, the, the healthier you are, the longer you live, it's all connected. It's not that, you know, you'll live long so you'll be sick for 30 years it's of course it does happen but uh it's not it's more of an exception than a rule and yeah and just to clarify in my mind you you did say that in the book you talk about longevity because it's a way you can could could compare uh situations and contributions to that but really 
the important thing is living longer means living better, feeling better, living healthier, yeah. uh, and having a better life. Yeah, it's not about you know becoming you know. I never say that you know. Also, the title "growing younger" actually, I, for me, it's mostly about growing as a person. I never mean that growing younger as in kind of the, the, you know the people who want you to swallow some kind of pill think about it sometimes. You know, <laughs> I'm all young, beautiful, and look twenty. This is not at all <laughs> about staying healthy, living long, and growing as a person. Right. So becoming kinder, nicer, more involved in your community, involved with your friends, and so on. Right. Right. Yeah, that's great. Well, this this was a lovely book, and I definitely plan on passing it along to people I know. So for those of you who uh, have not gotten a hold of the book, I suggest it, Growing Young uh, by Marta Zaraska. So um, yeah, it's, it's great. Like I'm, I'm thinking my mom's the first person to get a, get the copy of the book. <laughs> yeah, jo and Joanne told me beforehand, she says, oh, I went out and actually bought a copy so that I could give it to people. <laughs> yeah. That's very nice. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I like your style too. It was lighthearted. Like it didn't, you know what I mean? I thought some some of these books about aging can be quite serious, but yours was very lighthearted, but had really good science. So I think that's just like a perfect combination. So. Thank you, John. It's probably the novel writing, you know? <laughs> yes. All right. Well, everybody, thank you uh, for joining us as we spoke to Marta. Marta, thank you very much. And, Thank you uh, so much. We'll see you guys again next time on Read Science. Bye-bye. Thanks, Marta. Thank you.